Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. In 1968, we went backwards in time. You, I thought we would keep going forward, 80s and 90s. You're going backwards now, 1968. In 1968, the band released music from Big oh, he Pink. died. Sorry, go ahead. Yes, he did. Yeah. And I mentioned that Very because sad. this week we lost Robbie Robertson, a key member of the band. Of course, the great Levon Helm we lost a couple of years ago, the drummer and singer of the band. By the way, you're listening to the On The Tape podcast. The person that interrupted me was the great Danny Moses. Back from Halls. Halls, they call that in Europe, like holiday. Dan Nathan is in Colorado, I believe, as we're doing Maybe this. Maybe he's up on Cripple Creek. That's the band, right? That's the okay. band. Anyway, yes. Up he on could be. You know Creek. what I'm doing? You know what I'm doing? I'm putting Dan's glasses on. You know why? To stretch them across my oh, white head. So he's he, not. He's, he's going to go gonna nuts. Be, he's going to go nuts. And let me nuts. tell you something else, When just so the viewers understand his kind of OCD. If things are out of place, look, Dan, I'm spinning a pin on the thing. It's facing the wrong direction. I have a water cap here that the bottle doesn't belong anywhere. So anyway, please, go ahead. But you're back. And I'm by back. the way, we're going to have a conversation with Lori Calvacina, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. The last time Lori was here was on October of last year, and she painted a pretty good picture, which, by the way, has come to fruition. So we'll discuss that with her. Now you're saying, all right, Guy, once again, you're off the rails. Podcasts haven't even started yet. So let me explain this. Robbie Robertson, a great singer-songwriter. Mm. Fantastic. I don't think people appreciate his guitar playing. Fantastic. One of the great guitarists of our lifetime. The song that everybody knows is The Weight. I pulled into Nazareth, was feeling about half past dead. And Nazareth is Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Martin Guitars are built. Okay. And now you don't know these things. But the song, if you listen to the song and the lyrics, maybe we'll put the lyrics in the show notes, Danny. It tells a story. And for me, and for everybody, music is different. I hear that song and I think this is somebody that's that's looking for not retribution, but is looking to find something that's pure, that's always fighting against a lot of different factors. And I hear the weight. I feel as if both you and I and Dan Nathan as well, have been carrying this weight around. We're looking for redemption. We're looking for the light. We're looking to help people. But along the road, we meet different, Crazy Chester, we meet all these different characters in the song. And each time 
were thwarted. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Yeah, it does. I always like, you take me on this thing. I learn something I take new you every on day. journeys. Yeah, you do take me on journeys. Yes, a lot of uncles and crazy, crazy things chess. that I mean, are going just, around. As we're on this journey together, we're walking down this path. There are no straight lines in life. I went to a Jesuit university, and one of the things that I learned in my Problem of God class in 1982, there are no straight lines in life. And as much as we want to make what we're trying to do linear, we're trying to get the point from point A to point B, unfortunately, along the way, there's some detours. The same way if you listen to that song, they're obviously detours. Great song. So rest in peace, Robbie Robertson. But how are you, Danny Moses? I'm good. It's good to be back. Being away for a week, you really get away from it. You can see things a little it's bit good, more though. clearly. It's good, though. It's funny. You were away. I'm not going to say where you were, because if I say it, I'm doxing. You did it already. And apparently, yeah, I don't want to... I don't. I shouldn't dox anybody anymore. Yeah, I no. learned things from you as well. Yeah. But you called me. You had like an epiphany about a week or so. Out of the blue, I get a call from Danny Moses. I have clarity for the first time in a while. Sometimes, by the way, you need to take a step away in order to get clarity. To see the field. Exactly. And so we had talked about the Bank of Japan for weeks, for months. And then it, obviously the meeting on July 28th, I was already gone. And then it occurs and there's a little bit of confusion exactly what they did. But they basically raised the range of where they're going to let their yields trade up to 1% potentially, though they already panicked at 60 basis points. So I started thinking and I called you. you literally the only call I made, I think, the I whole time I was that. there. I appreciate that. I said, I realize now which statement of the obvious, we started this global central bank experiment with Japan years ago, what, in the late 80s probably, Guy. And then we took the baton, obviously, in 2008, and then the ECB and everything, and mm -hmm. BOE, whatever. What Japan is doing now, because they finally have inflation, right? And I'm watching the yen here as we sit here weakened to almost 145. And by the way, for you technical chart people out there, we're, we're starting to hit a very dangerous level. And what they're going to need to do in order to defend their 10-year yields to keep them contained now that they're inflation. We saw a glimpse of this in the fall of last year with the Bank of England. Mm -hmm. right? We saw a glimpse. How dare you try to... Which lasted yeah. two weeks. Two, right, right. And they, prime and minister they lost change. the prime minister exactly. on the back of it. So it feels to me, and I'm sure I'll be wrong because we'll figure out a new way to print money, which we did during the banking crisis in March, just called it something else. We are at kind of the end of things, meaning because inflation, yes, it's coming down, but it's still very high and may prove to be a little bit stickier with what's happening with it energy prices here, you can't print your way out of this any longer. And so that's the realization I think that's about to start occurring. And these experiments, which are starting to not work, right? And I don't know. It just seems like we're seeing a little bit of a shift. Forget about the S&P and the markets for a moment. It just mm -hmm. feels that way to me. So that's- I agree with you. Now, one of the things that I've said for a while, so the Bank of Japan started this whole charade decades ago. We caught on to it as well, we being the United States. And obviously, we're still the largest economy in the world. So what I think, and I say this, I'm curious as to your thoughts, I think one of the many unintended consequences of our, and I'm going to use the word reckless Fed, is that we enabled, we opened the door for other central banks to act in kind. So along the way, on this road to devaluing your currency and all these different things, when everybody's doing the same thing, what happens? What's the end game there? So to your point, there's going to come a point in time where it all stops and somebody has to pay the piper. But my point all along has been in the race to zero, there are no winners. Everybody's headed towards that same cliff. 
And I'm not, I don't know where we are in terms of getting to the cliff, but the cliff, it's there. I can see the friggin' cliff. And everybody's running towards it in the form of these central banks. And sometimes it's too late to stop that mass exodus. Your point is well taken because with the US dollar is the world's reserve currency. For now. And if you were going to print like we did, you had to have other people participating or the dollar would have gotten absolutely destroyed. Right. It wouldn't have worked. It worked because other people did it. It becomes self-fulfilling. You're going to keep doing it. While I was also away, Fitch downgraded the US rating. All right, so but, stop there. Yeah. So what did you make of that? Because a lot of people said, you're 10 years late. Where have you been? Blah, blah, blah. It's meaningless, whatever. It's and not meaningless. No, that's what they say. I don't know. I know that's what they I know you don't believe that it's meaningless. I don't think it's meaningless. I think they're late to the dance. But if you actually read what they said, all the things that they're bringing forth are things to be concerned about. It's 100% right. And so the things you should take away from that, forget about, does it trigger anything in this moment? No. Is it a wake-up call? Yes. Our deficit and funding this debt as rates move higher, mm -hmm. I don't think people realize every day that goes by a new paper is issued, our interest costs are going up and it's going to eat up all of our budget. So again, back to the fiscal responsibility standpoint, whoever gets into the White House and whoever controls Congress next year, there's no tax cuts coming. There's no fiscal stimulus probably coming because you won't be able to do it. So I'm saying all those normal things that you can pull, mm -hmm. the levers that you can pull to create. We did this IRA, right? This, which is obviously spending Inflation money in the system. Reduction Act. Right, yep. which in the system, you can do these things. My point is that I don't think that there's anything normal about coming out of something like we've done here with this global central bank experiment. It is what it is. And I'll say it again. I was against it in 2008. In hindsight, it was the right thing to do because nobody, even us, knew the depths of how this thing was globally Fair. attacked. So I get it. The TARP, the TALF, the PPIP, the DEAD, dead the, yeah, all the acronyms. They're going to run out of acronyms eventually that were done. Yes, but we never paid the piper for exactly. that. Exactly. We it's never not paid the, the piper. I, listen, we were doing Fast Money at the time. We were in our early innings of Fast Money. So we would come on television for six or nine months having to explain something that had never been done before in the fiscal history of mankind. They were pulling things out of thin air and we were trying to talk about them. So I didn't have a problem with them trying to stem the tide and stop the bleeding. My problem all along has been the duration with which they stuck around. And the fact that we got, we, our economy here in the United States, got addicted to these types of different things. It's the weaning off that kills you. It was the Bernanke that we used to call don't him, the even, Bernanke, I, you because know something, he I, is the one, I don't want to I don't want to waste time speaking about it. He was the one, we could have gone through iterations of pain, I believe, in 2011, 2012, 2013, and we just didn't. We, we could just have didn't want to feel it. We, we did a QE2 and QE3, but we didn't do it. And can the S&P keep moving higher? Sure, we can inflate all assets. I'm just talking philosophically about what mm -hmm. I'm seeing and what's happening is, just let me be very clear, if the global markets start to lose faith, the central banks, either in their ability to have or lose any type of credibility, there are multiple contraction points coming in this market. Last week, the name of our podcast was Turning Japanese. You know the song yep. by The Vapor. And I brought it up because of everything you're talking about right now. So let me just stop for a second and say, I don't think we're paying enough attention. I think you agree. Dollar yen, if dollar yen were to meaningfully get through 150, 150, you got to start saying to yourself, there's something amiss there. And the market is starting to call bullshit not necessarily called bullshit, but it's starting to push the Bank of Japan. You want to play this game? We're going to push you into this corner. You want to continue? We're going to continue to push you in the corner until something breaks. It's happening in slow motion until it happens all at once. You know what else is broken, Guy? This whole algorithm AI game of not AIs as it relates to stock valuations, AI playing on every CPI print and every economic data point print and how it basically creates, mm -hmm. right? Just from words that hit the tape or numbers that are input into a system on how a market's supposed to trade. 
the danger, and I'm looking as we get on, come on here today, the two-year yield and 10-year yield are trading north of 10 basis points in ranges. That's, I don't think people realize this is like the new, oh, that's, that's insane. Okay, It's insane. So it's insane. Wait, so, stop for a second. Yeah. This is the United States you're talking about. The most this, liquid market in the world are no, U.S. No, treasuries. should be the yeah. most liquid. And yet it, they trade, and I've said this, so people get tired of hearing me say it, but it's important to point out. Treasuries trade like biotech stocks. A $100 million biotech stock with one drug in the pipeline that is contingent upon some sort of FDA approval. That's what it trades like. Let me just say which this. Which is crazy. Let me just say this. If you're a an astute trader of bonds and equities and you're patient and you have a thesis, right? Nothing changed today from that CPI number, right? Oh. You just reaffirmed the expectations, right? If you're bullish, you don't chase on that print. You wait for a pullback to buy. If you're bearish, right? If you're bearish, you sell into the news today because it hasn't changed anything. But nobody makes money in trading. They get, get pre-market. It's crazy. So I see that, and it's. I just had to mention it because this can't continue. That is a chop up. You are basically dis destroying. I think wealth is maybe too dramatic, but you're destroying shareholder money when you try to trade something like that. Whilst you were gone, and I'm going to trigger you here. I don't mean to, but it's. I, I'd like your thoughts on this. Bill Ackman came out and no. said he's effectively. Shorting the bond market. The announcement came, at least for the short term, what wound up being the top tick in terms of 10-year yields, like 4.2%. And then 10-year yields backed off, but they're starting, to your point, they're getting back on their horse. I happen to agree with them. I'm not, I don't find myself agreeing with them a lot of times, but if the yield curve steepens, but it steepens with long-term treasuries going higher, that's a bear steepening. I mean, I don't get wonky here. But yeah. that's not a good thing. Question is, sorry, so why people speak their book in something like that? It's he fine. hasn't learned his lesson going after no. And listen, if Icon still had a dollar left after what's happened to him, he probably would have come out and well, just taken the other whole, side. That's a whole other story. We can story. talk about that in a second. It, more importantly to me is not where yields are going. It's why they're going. They're fine. Point. Fair so enough. If you're telling me that yields are going to move higher because the faith in our ability to pay our debts— Turn out the lights. It's game over. That, doesn't, the, doesn't, it's, well, they're not going higher because the economy's getting better. Well, no, I understand. But no, I'm, I know you understand, but that's important. You, Distinction. What, if you're a bullish person, you say yields are going higher because the Fed's going to be cutting and we're going to have a no landing or a soft landing scenario and we're going to be able to continue this kind of growth above average growth. Now, I'm not in that camp. No, But I also I. believe when you see moves like this, like we saw in oil a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago that took out a macro fund over in the UK, I believe, right? This stuff gets out there. The last thing I would want to do right now is talk my book on a macro basis. Now, I don't know the size that Ackman's putting on. Why? It's a little PR. He feels a little ignored. He wants to come out and splash around. Great. And you know what will happen? Yields will be at 370s. Oh, I, was, I got out of that. I was already out of that position here. But when don't get say, me started. Way, when you yeah. say splash around, yeah. immediately <laughs> I, I, I think, no, but immediately I think of, we talked about this. That scene in Rounders. Yeah. When, splash when, the pot? Yeah, spl splash the pot. I could, it's my, I'll splash the pot. Yeah. It's John Malkovich. Yeah. And of course, ben, not Ben Affleck, Matt Damon says, don't splash the pot. And Jen, yeah. Malkovich is getting his ass kicked by Matt yeah, Damon. Yeah, maybe that's where I got it from. This I, black, I love but. it. Don't splash. I'll splash. Anyway, I, I digress as I typically do. I don't know how big his position is. And to your point, I don't know why he came out or f felt it necessary to come out and say those things, but it doesn't mean he's wrong necessarily. And I think that's important. So okay. you got to watch the bond market. If 10-year yields start to grind high, and I'll tell you, if you want to play our home game, 91-ish 
in the TLT. And you can say it's not a great instrument. It's not the point. That was the low we made back in October, which correlated to about four and a quarter in 10-year yields. And that's where we could potentially push down to. And if 10-year yields start to push through four and a quarter at the same time dollar-yen starts to go through 145 and all these different things happen, I don't know. That's not a particular who's the owner picture. Of, who's the largest foreign owner of our... I think that's China. Nope. No. Number two. Who's the largest? Oh, the, Japan. Our, Japan. So we won't see for another few weeks if they've been selling, which, by the way, if you need to defend your currency or you need to buy your own, they what gotta, are you going to sell? you got to sell Those something. Those are the things I'm talking about, yeah. like this intertwine. But anyway, we can move on from there. I want to talk about another name. That, Please. Okay, completely shifting gears here. I like, but like one of my, downshift. One of my favorite. Can you drive I'm actually going to upshift can you, can and you start drive the a car. Stick? If, I, if yes. I bought you a like, yes. 1968 yes. Chevelle. Yep. With four on the floor. Yeah. You can is that, that where the gear shift is actually on the dash or is it down no, in the middle? No, it's down here in the middle. Because remember, like the Corvair has had the things. first on the floor. Yeah, I could. Yeah. I would love I would, I like would a do Bruce it. Springsteen I really song. loved it. Yeah. On Mark Call on Tuesday, I've harped on this name a lot. And I'm not even involved in the name. And who cares? It's a couple billion at this point, three billion market cap, probably. Upstart. They're using AI for mm. lending and lending platform, right? Personal loans. And they're doing auto loans. Now they're getting into home equity loans. And they're adjusted. They made a little bit of money, but credit's going to be an issue for them. Guy, they're actually moving down the credit scale right now to grow their business. In this point in the cycle, I find that interesting. But I just wanted to see this one thing that I saw off of their conference call, if you could just humor me for a uh, second. Because I didn't actually listen to the call, but I went back and looked at the transcript. They've broken through on lending. And let me just be very clear. I've said all along, and Vinny used to say, you cannot commoditize lending. If your loan book grows faster than GDP, you will have issues. You have not figured anything when out. When Buy Now, so, Pay Later came out, you called bullshit on it. That's two years ago. All right. So there's nothing new about this. So what this. they're trying. So they're dependent. Just for people that understand, UPST. They're dependent on getting funding in order to basically make the loans, and then they balance sheet them and/or sell them. Right. So the loans perform. They can originate them. We got this cool platform. We're going to sell them. Over the last several quarters, they've been forced to keep some of those loans because they can't sell them. Correct. And the ones they sell, you know, are the best. But here's here's a new thing, and then we'll move on. I, I just love this stuff. I want to share us an exciting breakthrough. It's something we call parallel. Hold on a second. You're doing that in your. I don't know. St- You're doing that in your strip. No, more DJ. Voice. I th- okay. or two for two. But I liked it anyway. In this slide, I want to share an exciting breakthrough. Something we call parallel timing curve calibration. Okay. Stop, I don't stop, even. I can't stop even. Stop for a second. Yeah. What is that? Parallel timing curve calibration. They basically are going to run AI models on simulated portfolios on how they believe that their loans will perform from a delinquency, whatever. I saw something like that. You should sell. Honestly, well, you see something like that. That's You're coming what happened. Up. When, you gotta, when you have to basically, anyway, when you want to validate why your business you think is going to start to make money by something like that, right? You're coming up with, you've reinvented people. There is no reinventing lending. It's been around since the beginning of time. You cannot commoditize it. You cannot use AI to, what you can use AI to do is tell me what my delinquencies are and my loss rates are, because that's what you're going to be reporting. Well, anyway. For you, again, playing the home game, what's today? August 10th, I believe. Yes. So you'll, tomorrow, when you hear this, I'm saying tomorrow, but it will be today when I say tomorrow. So it's August, it's Friday, August 11th, folks. On August 1st, Upstart, UPST, was a $72 stock. As we're sitting here, it's a thirty-two and a half dollar stock. <laughs> no, but it's, it's. It's. I mean, listen. It's, it's remarkable. The reason I, it's a two point seven billion market cap. So the reason I mention it is high short interest. Reddit's got it. Get out of the way. Here we go. Now, if you're a short seller and you got squeezed, it is what it is. You had to protect because. But this is what's gone on. This is what. So, oh, short sellers are evil. Are they? Because the short sellers were giving the playbook. Short sellers are wrong because the stock goes up and that's how you get graded. But. To me, this is the stuff. Like, this is where you have to be paying they attention. They point out some of the... F- now, we're going to talk... You, since you mentioned Icon Enterprise, we'll talk about it. By the way, mm. 
Upstart was a $400 stock. Oh, I remember. That guy, I can't remember the guy's name. Two years ago. Yeah. The fall of 2021. Yep. There are all these crazy things that have been going on. Let's talk about Icon Enterprises because, once again- They changed the samples. They used another provider. They changed their dividend. You saw that. That was what happened when I was gone. Another fun thing happened. Does this mean- I only bring it up because Carl Icahn is obviously a legend. Remember in the, in the movie in, in Ocean's 13, they talked to Carl Reiner and he's trying. He's at the dog track. Matt Damon, or not Brad Pitt goes to see him. I actually have a him. credit on that movie. No, you don't. Yes, do I do. Right? Brad Pitt goes to see him yeah. and he's trying to talk him into doing something. He's like, you're in, you're in the Hall of Fame already. You don't need to do this. But people this, don't change who they are. I get it. But that's no exact- one's ever challenged him like that. Then, but this. Hindenburg. It's being challenged. Yes. But it's being challenged not in the papers. or in, It's being challenged in the stock price. So we know people, I will not name them, whose parents or retirees own this. And this is why I talk about things like this, because I want people to be aware that don't listen to your financial advisor that's probably getting a fee to sell it that looks like it's a 20-something percent dividend. Oh, look, this is great. This is great. Hindenburg's point was that you're not earning the dividend, right? That Icon had basically has pledged his shares as collateral on this. And guess what? He got outed, got challenged, and the trade went against him. What has he done? He's cut the dividend. He's changed his collateral. And I would not own this thing here. Again, do you go out and short it? No. It's in the mid-20s. Guy wears this thing somewhere hanging in the mid-20s. 24 and a half. So just for just it went from a trough of 18 in May. I think it doubled. Not that means anything. And now here we are, 24 and change. That a miserable week. But I guess the point that I look at this and say, it's not about this is Carl Icahn's company. This is his thing. And this he, is his legacy. He even said, and he was forced to, I think, say, I was wrong. I was short the market. There's another guy that capitulated. Listen, he's a smart guy. Forget the structure of this thing. You're right. Icahn has seen twice as many cycles as you and I have, right? He's been through it, right? He's an activist. He, he's still active. He's his ego got ahead of him here, I think. But anyway, my point, you brought up Ackman. It made me think of Icahn and all this. But my point is that that yield's not real. I remember this, this, the subprime companies when we were shorting them in 2005. The bar was difficult. All right, so stop for a second. Yeah. You saw something in 2005. Now, but I'm not I'm, correlating that no, no, to no, what no, I'm no. seeing. But here. my right. point is you saw and, – and again, we t- I talked about this with you when I went and watched The Big Short, how upset I got and how I knew I'd be upset because I knew it was going to happen. And when you have clarity like you had, but when things still move against you – that's extraordinarily frustrating. Look, I'm not comparing myself to you, Porter, Vinny, any of those guys. What I'm trying to say is my level of frustration is exactly that. I think I have clarity, yet things continue to happen that frustrate the shit out of me. Anyway, please. No, the comparison was that the implied dividend yields on those companies, New Century or Credit Home Lenders, so remember, they structured themselves as REITs. They found this loophole, right? Mm-hmm. But it was just mortgage-backed securities. They were implied 20% yields, 30% yields. We knew it wasn't sustainable. Insane. Because anyone that has a 20 or 30% yield, is, unless it's a pipeline company, it's not sustainable. We know that. The short interest was 30, 40, 50% on it. So it took a lot of guts to say, all right, we're going to go short these stocks. What's interesting is that we knew they were going to zero, right? But you had to time it. And if you're wrong by two or three quarters, you're paying 25% short interest. So just in two quarters alone, that eats 12.5%. The implied dividends or the paying dividends are another. So you're down 35%. The beauty of the accidental phone call from Greg Lippman or Jared <laughs> Vanette or Ryan Gosling, whatever character you want that came in, we were debating at that moment. How do we maintain this position? How do we put this trade on, express this trade, Mm -hmm. and not get killed? And then the trade came to us where he says, you can pay literally 2%. So we were comparing a 2% kind of basically coupon that we have to pay out being short, right? Credit default swap on that bond, so to speak, to pay. We're like, 2% and we're shorting it at par. Sign me up. Sign me up. 
So for us, and everyone had a different reaction, for us, it was opportunistic trade. There was a no-brainer because we knew if those companies failed, that the underlying bonds or mortgage-backed securities that they were issuing were going to fail mm -hmm. because they held them on the balance sheet. It was the same. So my point is that when you see those things in its entirety and you can paint the mosaic and see, I'll bring it right back to not necessarily Icon, but to the meme stocks and to these things, you know when things are not sustainable. So when you feel and you want to be a retail trader and you want to go into Reddit and you want to buy these stocks that are out there because they have high short interest, let's go get them. People, there's a reason that they have high short interest. So it just doesn't just happen overnight. Is that a technical reason to own a stock? If you have a fundamental reason to own 100%. If you believe that AMC is going to have 22 Barbie sh movies come in the next whatever, fine, more power to you. But you get my point, guy. You got to pull back and do the whole mosaic. It's not just about those because if, if you try to time a technical short rally, so to speak, or short covering, you're going to end up getting, no one's going to time that. You have to have the thesis behind it and you have to have the courage of your conviction and you have to have the clarity. But it's one of those things like that herd of wildebeest are still moving forward. You know they're headed towards that cliff, but do you want to get in the way of them? Mid no, you have to allow that to take place. Just a question of where is that cliff for the wildebeest to run themselves off? Because invariably they do. We're going to talk to Lori Calvacina, and I'm sure passive and active will come up. And here's one of my concerns all along. For example, Apple, and don't at me if I'm off by a couple, is in three, <laughs> 347 ETFs. Apple is one of the top 1515 holdings. As money flows into these ETFs, a lot of people don't even realize they own Apple. Chances are, if you're in the market, you own Apple, which, by the way, has been a fantastic thing over the last... I'm not saying it's not been a good thing, but that can turn very quickly. And Apple, I'm sure you looked at the quarter, three quarters in a row of declining revenue, dec I mean, declining... It's slowing down. Yes. Which is fine. It happens. Stock made an all-time high, I want to say, last week. It obviously reversed. Now it's trading in the mid-170s-ish. Valuation is still stretched. My point is, my concern is when passive investing becomes active... It ain't going to be active on the way up. It's going to be active on people saying, holy shit, what's going on here? Yeah. And that gets dangerous. It's great on the way up. It's scary on the way down. If, in fact, that's where we're on the cusp of. I've said on this podcast many times and in other places where I've talked about why did the move from active to passive happen? And it goes back to the same reason that people's in-laws are in Icon Enterprises right. is that the brokers are drive that. And what do I mean? Brokers stopped getting paid years ago on mutual funds. They stopped the fee structure so that the golf outing for Eaton Vance and take, the, take your broker out. I didn't call you guy and say, hey, you know what? I think these Eaton Vance mutual funds are for you. By and the you, way, we're just using yeah. Eaton Vance no, as an example. I'm using, I don't even know if they're even, whatever. No, yeah. I'm not using that as, yes. So you can strike that, whatever. Using that as an example. But my point is that when that changed, how the brokers got paid changed. How do brokers get paid? Now, the majority of them just charge a fee off of the gross assets. So if you have $100,000 with someone and they charge you 1%, you pay them $1,000 a year. They don't charge you on a trade for commission. They, they will incent you to buy products where they're getting some type of fee on the back end. But my point is that when you own an XHB or an XLF and you think you're diversified or your point the cues that you're diversified, you need to look within. I can tell you without looking at the XHB right now how the builders have performed versus Home Depot and Lowe's. I even know what the construct mm -hmm. looks like right now. And to your point, guy, this was all new money flows coming in. No one asks questions when the markets are going up. It's always when they're going down. What happened? How did that go down so much? I thought I was diversified. I thought, And so the, I'm not saying the brokers got lazy. The brokers adjusted to the new. But I know a lot of 
old school brokers that do both that are out there and they're actively trading options, trying to protect portfolios. They're active. Those are the ones that you want, the ones that have a brain, the ones that are thinking, not just asset gatherers that are getting a fee. Point guy, because it all moved together. Yeah, everything moved together. So and there's pay safety, attention to how people are incentivized. There's in safety life. in numbers, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Let me throw this out: credit card debt, something we talk about in oh. this country. Yeah, yeah. You just yeah, grunted. It's, I, it's just yeah. It's a staggering number. Staggering. So what's happening here is we are combating inflation with layering on more debt. Think about that for a second. Inflation goes higher. How do we combat it? Add to what? Yeah, it doesn't work. That recipe does not. Doesn't work. Those cookies don't taste. But good. why isn't any? But nobody wants to. They don't want to. They don't want to think about it, guy. It's the right to your point. Who's left to point those things out? Oh, you're just a bear. No one cares until they care. How many of these crises in the last three or four years, we have these intermittent battles with things coming out of nowhere, supposedly, right? They're not out of nowhere. They're out there. They just haven't come to the forefront yet. And when they get to the forefront, they become self-fulfilling. Perfect example, go back to this Japan thing with Mm -hmm. the yen. All of a sudden, when people realize, wait a minute, that's why the yen's weakening? I thought risk was back on. That's really interesting you say that. Yeah. Because historically, this is sort of a risk on environment for that. But something is changing. That pendulum is swinging the other way. That's my point. It's going to go from the all-time carry risk on all that bullshit you hear all about to it's going to change to a risk and it's going to happen quick. And it's going to start there. It's happening. I think it was last Friday. And I apologize if I'm, but I think it was when you were off. You had a big rally in the market or two Fridays ago. I, didn't, because, I didn't pay attention to whatever the day bank, that was. Because the Bank of Japan wasn't as draconian in that BOJ meeting that we had talked about a couple podcasts ago. doesn't mean anything was solved. It just means they weren't as... It wasn't as bad By the as way, people that, thought. Okay, it's funny you say that. It's not funny. I was on an overnight I'm, flight. I am I'm not going to dox myself. I was on an overnight flight that had TV reception in the middle of the night. The only thing that was on was CNBC Asia. That information was coming in live as I was. I'm like, oh, let me see what. Right. This guy's on. Looks pretty dovish. Looks like they're really not doing anything. I'm like, really? I'm like, I don't have it in front of me. I'll go. I guess I'll go with what this guy's saying. And I'm watching in real time Japanese ten-year yields trade from. 48 or 49, straight up to 61. And I'm like, yeah. this guy's missing something because they obviously said something. And they're reading in real time, like, we will maintain around 50 basis points. I said, okay, so we just, 25 is not now the low, 50 is the low. I wonder what the now top stop is. stop for a second. Yeah. Because I'm going to, you're right. The market traded on that. The market wasn't paying attention to the fact that the bond market said, you know what? Shove it up your ass. Exactly. We're going to test pu- you. We're going to test and you. And then I later in the flight, half paying attention, some, someone mentions 1%. And I'm like, whoa. Where'd that per- come where'd from? Where'd that come from? We will defend if we ever get near 1%. I'm like, okay. They've just moved the goalpost. Right. They moved the goalpost. So this yield curve control went from 25 to 50 basis points to 50 to 1%. By the time I landed, they were already buying their bonds back at a 60 basis point. So the point is that no one can take pain, right? It's crazy. And so these are the things that we try to help people educate them. And I haven't even talked about the markets or anything like that. I will say this, that I watch the Fed fund futures because I think it's the driver and it's the it tells you the behavioral finance aspect of what people are looking for. And maybe I should put on Dan's glasses and stretch right, these things again. But in the course of today, we have pulled forward now the odds, and maybe it's even changed since we started recording this, and odds of a rate cut in January from 32 to 38%, and in March from 59 to 64%. So let me be clear. If the driver of the market of being bullish is that the Fed's going to be, we're pretty much starting to price that in. We have less than a 10% chance of another rate hike. Anyway, again, 
what leads us to the Fed actually cutting. Yeah. We just what, went through it. What is going, what is to, going to lead us to Think that? about that. Because the unemployment rate of this country is been it's yeah. it's unbelievable. Great yeah. it's a great employment pick. Credit markets haven't seized up. You should ask yourself this not that this I'm is for the audience. What is taking place? Now, the bulls will say, it's easy, guy. Inflation will continue to come down, and they'll be cutting on the back of that. I'm not sure about that, Kimosabi. That's not what I right. look at. So, again, that's what makes markets, Danny. I will tell you, this I will aim 100% certain of. Or I should say 99. No one should be 100% yeah. certain of anything. So I mentioned before, there was a couple funds that blew up on the oil trade when it got mm -hmm. down to 65. And what happens is, so people out there understand, there is no hidden thing here. All the brokers that are the ones that give the lines of credit and house these assets, whether they be currencies, energy, whatever it might be, agriculture, stocks, whatever it is, they're watching their risk parameters and they make the call and they make the tap on the shoulder to the, right? What have we gone through in the last three or four months since Silicon Valley blew up? What have we gone through? The big banks are obviously on watch not just from Moody's, the big banks are on actual watch from the regulators, their shareholders, and everybody. They cannot afford to have these, quote, blow-ups. They cannot afford to have Archegos happen with a family office. Mm -hmm. They cannot afford. We will see. It moves like we just saw with the yen. When the yen starts to blow out and get weaker, what is causing that increment? It may just indeed be as simple as a, hey, guess what, hedge fund? You're out of your position. You're levered you got, three times, you're out. You got to cover. Well, let me explain. The long-term capital, the greatest book ever written, was not the big short. The greatest financial book ever written is The Rise and Fall of Long-Term Capital When Genius Failed. And when I was away, we had someone call and say, hey, can Danny tell us what his favorite book is of all time? It's The Rise and Fall of Long-Term Capital When Genius Failed. And let me tell you, because it's all behavioral finance. It doesn't matter. I'm going to tell you this. The best part of that book was that they convinced the brokers to do business for free to not charge them commission because it was such an honor to, to see what they John were doing. Merriweather I mean, come on, and, man. And all the yeah. Solomon anyway, guys. That's the, the, no, but think about the, the But they scope. took them out is my point. They think took them out. Think about the scope yeah. of long-term. I think it was a $300 million. Or, what, I don't even I don't know. Levered, it was massive. But, but, it was, but in terms of what we're, numbers we talk about today, we'd laugh about long-term capital. Now, I understand it's many years ago, but still. But they had Russian ruble, sterling. They had all these cross trades on. They, had, they were using Vega. They had Myron Scholes walking around in their offices. No, I'm not and, kidding. Or I know. Myron Scholes, whatever his name is. It was Bill Boutte, Merriweather, yeah. all the Solomon Rosenfeld, guys. Yep. all those guys that came from Solly. But my point is, they can be the smartest guys. They are. They're brilliant people. Merriweather has since done other funds and whatever after that. But my point is that they were taken out, not because the trade was going to be wrong. They were over levered to the trade and it went against them, albeit even for a brief time. And that's, guy, what we're going to start to see. I believe, in right, various great. pockets. And that's the scary thing, because no one knows where the bodies are buried on this stuff. The brokers have a pretty good idea. So pay attention to that, because you'll start to hear, oh, that person got carried out on that trade. That person got carried out. Could be in the bond market, right? Could be a currency market. I so. think we're foolish, not we, us, but I think the market is foolish not to pay attention to Fitch. I think the market is foolish not to listen to some of these Moody's comments. I think the market should be watching what's going on in Japan. I think the market absolutely has to watch the re-steepening of the yield curve here in the United States and the continued nonsense that goes on in the bond market. And I think you'd be foolish if you didn't watch some of these. I got to tell you something. We talked about this super microcomputer stock, which yeah, went from drilled. 100 to 350. They didn't say particularly good things about AI. Stock went down 30% in a heartbeat. You want to go back and listen to or read what Taiwan Semi said. And we're coming up to... I think one of the most fascinating earnings releases in the history of mankind. On August 23rd. In the form of NVIDIA. Yeah. That is, get your effing popcorn out, 
because something, cr- some crazy shit's going to happen. Mark my words on that one, Danny. I don't Let's disagree. Just... Then we go right into Jackson Hole from there, and we'll see. It's going to be a wild, I think, back half of August and a wild fall for sure. In Great this to have so... you back. And football season is on the horizon, yep. and we're going to talk about that. I know Dan's going to get – he's have a He won't want to pay attention. We'll probably you know have to what? create That's a right. You podcast. and I will do it together. That's exactly. fine. fine. I don't care. And by the way, if you remember last year – Early on the Eagles, and then everybody no, you, got a very good. I'm, Jacksonville I'm a, Jaguars. I talked. I said playoff team. People are like, what the hell are you talking about? I think the Super Bowl champs coming out of the state of Pennsylvania this year. That's what I believe. Okay, I believe it's fair Steelers enough. or Eagles, but maybe a little too soon on the Steelers. I don't want to give away my preview, but I think that could be the Super Bowl matchup. You're getting 100 to one, I think, on that matchup right now. Oh, you really? But you know what? I'll give you. I'll give you this right now because I want to make a bet. Uh, Let's do a gentleman's. I don't bet, I, but go ahead, give it to me anyway. I'll. Let you bet Daniel. I don't even know what the odds are for being MVP of the league. I don't, I'm not saying I'll give you 100 to 1. I, I am not saying he's okay. going to be the anyway, MVP we're done. of the league. We wrap it up here. I'm but, telling you that Daniel yeah. Jones is going to have a statistical breakthrough Great. season. Fantastic. By the way, nobody's paying attention to this. The Giants have very just orderly rebuilt that offensive line. Evan Neal is going to be a stud. Thomas, Andrew University Th- of Georgia. He's already one of the top two or three tackles in the sport. The kid from Minnesota, Schmitz, at center is going to be a stud. And then they have some guards that can play. Adami. That guard Adami is pretty good. Yeah. There's no Adami guard. (laughs) Anyway, wrap us up. Get us out of here. When we come back, our conversation with Lori Calvacina from RBC Capital Markets. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, Visit iConnections.io. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, we are now joined by Lori Calvacina, head of U.S. equity strategy, Danny, at RBC Capital Wealth. You may recall, actually you do recall, that she joined us on October 14th of last year at the balls lows of things and made some pretty prescient calls. I don't know how to spell that, but I know it means she was way ahead of the game, Danny Moses. Yeah, so it's well, a great to have her here. Lori, welcome back. Remember last time I told you we're both children of 
professors, right? Yeah. So we, and we're both from the South originally. We both made our way up here. We don't know what we're doing. Yeah. We have, somehow we made our way here. But welcome back to On the Tape. And you were actually, I wouldn't say bullish, but in October, you're like, this, I don't see, it's not going to get a lot worse from here. You think this could be a face ripping rally. And I went back and listened to the episode and you got a lot more right than wrong. But a couple of things I want to get into here that have happened out of sequence, potentially okay. that have occurred. And maybe starting with the present, and then we'll work our way back, okay. the things that you look at. The most interesting thing that I think that you've done that no one else does, I don't believe, is when you're looking at PE multiple expansion or contraction, you're looking at inflation expectations. And most people are obsessed with interest rates. Yeah. And you think that's more of a byproduct. So CPI came out this morning. It's moderating. You actually had said last year that we would end at 2.7% at the end of 2023. I think that was your prediction. You're going to be right on the money there too, unless I'm mistaken. So let's start with today's print and then work. what is it telling us? And then let's work our way back and where you'd be allocating from here. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting watching the market reaction to the print today because we sort of had these initial moves and then they all faded. And when I was getting in the car to come here, you know, there wasn't all that much going on sector-wise. When I've talked to our rate strategists, they've said we're entering into this boring period for the Fed, which is an equity person I love because I'm tired of talking about the Fed. Right. And I think it was a good print. Our CPI heat map is still all pretty much green. Things are heading in the right direction, a few wrinkles here and there. But I don't think we really learned all that much that was new. It's headed in the right direction. We'll see you know, exactly where it ends up at the end of the year. But I think we're at that point, right, where the Fed can pause. And people are generally, whether you call it a pause or a skip in September, that's really where the pricing is. And there's not too much to fight about for the next few months. But you had said you thought that deflation would start to occur sooner. And now it looks like it's going to happen potentially later. And that's a real risk to the markets. And I don't think people understand how that can hurt earnings. And they yeah. just think that, oh, no inflation's good. No, explain that to people because yeah. I think that's part of the crux so, of your So, you know, I'm, I'm a data nerd, right? And so we've seen that moderating inflation and moderating inflation expectations boost PE multiples. We know that from studying the 70s and early 80s. But what we also know is that when you moderate inflation, it pulls your revenues down, which pulls your earnings down. And the flow through to margins, in my back testing at least, is not direct. What's been interesting has been this reporting season. We have finally started to see companies acknowledge that. Now, it is not the dominant conversation, but I would say maybe two or three weeks ago in the transcripts I was reading, I saw a bunch of companies say, hey, inflation is moderating, costs are getting better. We're not going to be able to push pricing the way we were. We're going to have to start cutting, cut pricing. And I don't know that a lot of investors picked up on it, but I think that's one of the next big debates we're going to have on Wall Street is what that means to earnings. And I, I, it's look, it's good for the multiple, right? But we are going to have to probably pull earnings expectations down a bit because of that moderating inflation. The margin improvement has been robust. I would imagine if that takes place, the margin contraction will be equally to the other side robust. I think what's interesting is uh, margins have just become, I think, almost impossible for people in my seat to predict. Things that worked 10, 15 years ago when it was all about these macro variables, they just don't flow through anymore. And the reason for that, again, if you go back and read these calls, companies had the trade war, then they had the pandemic, they had the supply chain crisis, inflation, and they just are really good at managing around problems it's harder to manage around a loss of revenue. So I think that's going to be an interesting challenge, a problem they can fix except for back on demand. Your current earnings estimates for 2023 are still $219, is that? I'm at 220 I pulled it up a whopping dollar the other yeah. day. 
Can you explain? So where are we going to finish second quarter, do you think? What will our cumulative earnings be? We're north of $100 in, in first and second quarter. Where are we going to So be? I don't do the quarterly estimates. I just put out the full year ones. And we've come in a bit ahead of consensus on the 2Q numbers. We're about 90. Last I checked the numbers, we're about 90% done with the S&P. What you typically see in most years, earnings forecasts start out way too high. If you start looking at them the summer before the actual year, and at this point in time, the middle part of the year, you basically see estimates stabilized. But we're at a range, there's people at 185 up to 235. And for this point in the cycle or this point of view, that's a huge, obviously, yeah. gap. I don't have to have to do the percentages on that. So now the question is, and this is the big question, is the trough versus the inflection versus when. If you told me that 219 or 220 is going to happen, I'd be a lot more bullish on the market because that would, would tell me that I know we haven't only had two soft landings, 1966 and 95 or whatever the, the years were that occurred. That doesn't seem to jive necessarily with a 42.50 end of S&P. It does on a 20, you know, 19 multiple. But yeah. walk me through that because now that you're playing both sides of this, yeah. it just seems if we get to that 219, that means things are actually okay, in my opinion. Well, I, I think the where we're sitting at with that 220 right now and the consensus, we've seen the 2Q come up a little bit better and the 3Q and 4Q have drifted down a little bit. But I think what companies basically do when they get to the middle point of the year, they just have to make it a couple quarters, right? They just have to manage a little bit longer. Until we use 2024. I think that the comment on market performance and what that means, I think we're done with 2023 earnings at this point. I think we basically basically priced in recessionary type earnings conditions at the October low of last year. And if you look at a rate of change year over year stock prices against year over year earnings, you've seen post financial crisis that stocks have really been leading earnings trends. And if you looked at the depth of decline in the market around the end of the third quarter of last year, when we were hitting those October lows, and if you do the math, it was basically implying about 180 on S&P earnings for this year. I don't think we're going to get at 180 on S&P earnings. But that's what we were baking in at that point in time. Of course, now it's coming in much, much better, but that's already reflected in the market. And so if you assume that forward-looking relationship indoors, what are we pricing in right now? You're basically pricing in a little bit better earnings growth and the recovery that's baked in for to next year's estimates. I think we've had this optimism emerge, right? Okay, the bottom in earnings is happening. It's not going to be that bad. 2024 is going to be a recovery year for earnings. That's already in the stock prices. So now we need to get that number up, right? We need to get incremental excitement about 2024 to really get the market going in the back half. I, I too think the Fed's a bit of a sideshow at this point, but there's no denying what they've done over the last 18 months. Now, 525 basis points of hikes. So here's my concern into the fall of this year. I think you're starting to see a reacceleration of inflation, and there are a couple different indicators that lead me to believe that, coupled with and almost simultaneous with the lag effect starting to kick in from these 525 basis points of hikes, which I don't think is particularly friendly environment for stocks, but that's the lens I'm looking through. Does that make any sense at all? It, it does, but I'll tell you, we did some new work maybe a week or two ago that doesn't alleviate the concern about lagged effects, but says maybe they're a bit farther off than any of us think. And if you look at the effective interest rate paid on mortgages, so not the new mortgage rate out there, right? It's creeping up, but very slowly. It is going to take time for that to work its way into consumers, and it's probably not going to be 3Q and 4Q this year. Same thing if you look at corporates. We've seen over time that companies have just ramped up the amount of long-term debt that they have. Only 2% of S&P companies have average weighted maturities between zero to two years. I think it's only like 
maybe 24% that are even that two to five year window. And if you look at the effective interest rate that companies are paying on their debt, we calculated it three different ways. And one measure we came up with, which is probably the most accurate, is 1.7%. When we looked at a simple median, it was 3.1%. So again, I think you are going to have those lagged effects come in as companies refinance, but it's not going to happen in the next So effectively, what you're saying is without even realizing for a lot of these companies already hedged against this a year, two, three years ago. Yeah, even beyond that, it was really when interest rates were sitting around zero. If you went to your typical sell-side conference, the analysts were yammering at the companies like, you need to go out and refinance your debt and lock in low rates and do buybacks and all this other stuff. And that's exactly what they did. And now we are reaping the benefits of that. But it is just a very unusual point in history because we've never seen the long-term debt as high as it's been right now relative to total cap. The, the short-term debt has just been, it's, it's just minimal compared to history. And now we're competing with Treasury issuing more bonds. We're competing with the Fed unloading bonds. Gerard Cassidy talks about this. It's very hard to gauge that with the banks and deposits leaving and so forth. But more importantly, if the S&P is 4,500, and that's where we're going to stay for the next four months, your job is not necessarily to predict the S&P. It's to predict the sectors within it that are going to be working and not working. You said last year that people were much too defensive in terms of how they were positioned coming in. You were right. People were overweight banks and energy coming into the year. And where we sit now, I know, I think I know what your answer is going to be. But if you had from scratch and you're allocating right now into various sectors. What do you underweight? What do you overweight from here? So I I think the problem with positioning right now, it's really a question of your time horizon. So I think in the short term, the growth trade is overbought. It's too expensive. And I wouldn't say people feel great about it, but they've been begrudgingly pulled on the bull train. If you look at the CFTC data, NASDAQ futures positioning is up around slightly higher levels than what we've seen the last five or six, you know, seven years. So it's stretched. Growth is at peak valuations relative to value again. It's corrected a little, but not all that much. So we have a tax practical problem on the growth trade. And and I think, look, we're in the midst of kind of a classic recovery trade. We had a recession bottom. We didn't end up having the recession, but we're still in that recovery mode. This is what always happens towards the end of recovery trades is the initial leaders hand off to other parts that have to catch up. So we've got to have that catch up on the value side. But then we go back to our earlier discussion. What does the recovery look like next year? We've already baked in a lot of recovery. Mm -hmm. GDP right now is forecast to be about 0.6% and then 1.9% in 2025. When you're below trend in GDP, guess what works? Growth stocks, not cyclicals. So I think we're going to have this catch-up trade in value, but I wouldn't totally abandon all your growth stocks yet. If you can stomach it, I would ride it out because you're going to need them for the longer term. I think this is just going to be very choppy. So you want to own the best of value, which I think is probably energy at this point. I think you want to own the best of growth, which I think is classic tech. And I think semis are really interesting. Let's talk about energy because energy's gotten back on its source. Depending on what lens you look through, the OIH, which in the middle of June, I think was 245, made a four and a half, five-year high earlier this week. A lot of these highly levered energy stocks have done extraordinarily well over the last couple of weeks. So the run has been happening. Personally, I think there's a lot of legs left. The underlying commodities showing signs of life. Gasoline very quietly is back on its source. Heating oil, all the products seemingly doing well. There's a lot to like about the energy sector. Yeah, and look, it's cheap in both small cap and large cap. In small cap, at least, it tends to be a recession rebound play. Not so much in big cap, but I think there's a case to moving down the risk spectrum. And I always love to watch earnings revisions. 
the rate of revisions to the upside. It's a great gauge of earnings sentiment. Now, that is very negative for energy, but that's predominantly about 2023 numbers. If you look at what's happened over the last few weeks, the anticipated growth rate for energy in 2024 has actually moved up. So people have kind of adjusted the 23 numbers, but they're leaving the 24 numbers alone or raising them a little bit. So there's optimism on that 2024 building. And just the rate of upward revisions, just all the mechanical adjustments you're making right now, it's a negative number, but it's very stable. And if you look at oil and gas, it's near historical lows. That is kind of a classic hold your nose and buy signal. Mm -hmm. Only we've started to see the performance already ready move. But I think to your point, we haven't really even begun the process too much, at least of pulling those numbers up. I've often said that if energy doesn't work from here, then we're in a lot of trouble because it probably means that the economy or global economy is slowing, specifically China. We know that this data is being ignored. I'm sorry, but it's being ignored globally. We're still very reliant on China yeah. as a demand and as a supplier. So how do you think about China? I probably have a slightly different take on China, which is I was traveling in Europe back at the end of April, early May, and I was talking to a lot of global investors, and they were all extraordinarily bullish on China, but investors over here were starting to worry a little bit. And you still had European companies that were very positive on China and U.S. companies that were giving you a more mixed picture. Now, I'll tell you, this reporting season we just went through has been pretty uniform formally negative in terms of the China commentary. I said 75% or so. I think that the global investment crowd got very anti-US early second quarter, and then that trade started to come off, and we started to see flow shift. So European equity flows turned negative. China flows had been positive, then those started to shift. There were outflows from the US. Those started to come back. I think the negativity on China, I think, is still, I wouldn't say it's new news necessarily, but I think it's still unfolding in certain circles, and I think that's benefited the US from a flow perspective. In real time right now in the third quarter. Yeah. So we just saw a second quarter get ripped. Third quarter, things are getting progressively worse, yeah. it feels like, in China, not improving. So just to push back yeah. on that, I would say it's not, and this isn't, I'm making a bearish or bullish call on the S&P as it relates to China. I just don't know where the incremental growth yeah. globally is going to come from. We're talking about Brazil. And That's what we're relying upon. You're saying, where is the incremental growth going to come from? Because normally it's one-off, someone goes through a cycle. Someone, it doesn't feel great on the on the macro. No. Point. And look, I, I talk about this global weakness issue as another reason to buy small caps in the U.S. And I, I've described it as when I was coming up in the business in the 2000s, I called it the gospel of global growth. We used to pour through financial statements. This was before we had all these fancy tech tools, and we would actually have to go through and look through the 10Ks and find the international revenue exposure and type it into Excel. But it was this idea, going global was good. That was how you grow. I don't think that's true anymore. I think this whole thing we're seeing from the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Act, I think we're reinvigorating domestic economies, especially here. So small caps don't have as much China exposure, right? I think that's both good in the short term and it's good in the longer term too, just because of how things are shifting. Very quickly, it's going to be the fall, and the election cycle is here. So there are a couple things. This is a, I don't. It's not a two-part question. It's a question. There's a lot of geopolitical risk out there. I don't know how you can ever gauge for that or, or plan for that. But China, Taiwan, China, and Russia last week. 11 warships in a joint military exercise off the coast of Alaska. I mean, that's not particularly bullish. So. China-Taiwan is out there without question. And then this election cycle in the United States is going to get really weird really quickly. So I don't even know if it can yeah. be a traditional election cycle forecast based on what's going on. 
It's a great question. Someone asked me the other day, they said, when are we going to start worrying about the election? And I said, it's already started. And the reason I think it's already started is because the international investors I speak with have all been asking me about it. And they're asking me things like, what are RFK's chances? They're getting really granular in some of the data and looking at the different candidates. I think the broader topic of geopolitical risk, unfortunately, everything I've seen over the course of my career, we're just not really able to price these things no, in you advance. Can't. You saw it back in the 30s and 40s when we were going into World War II. The, uh, we have a great chart on that time period and how much the S&P dropped. And what you saw basically was there was a little bit of a decline in the S&P before Hitler went into France. Mm -hmm. But then when Hitler went into France, that's when the bottom really fell out. How could you wait that long to price that into markets? But nevertheless, that's what happened. We saw the same thing with Russia-Ukraine. I have the privilege of working with Halima Croft, and she was running around for six months telling people, shouting at the top of the roof that this was going to happen and getting really frustrated that people weren't listening. We did the exact same thing again. Um, we did get a question on China and Taiwan recently, and, and that's what I told them. I said, we just can't really price it until it happens. No, it's interesting because Halima was talking about that, but we were talking about, I remember the summer into the fall, we were saying that the Russians have basically amassed 100,000 troops on the border. We talked about on this, this podcast. Was two, this was a year and a half ago. You're yeah. talking about 2021. They're not there. They're there for a reason. Nobody's paying attention to this. And I thought they would invade after the Olympics. Turned out they did it in the middle of the Olympics. That's neither here nor there. Halima was on this as well. I think the same thing is happening right now with China. It's obvious if you're paying attention with the rhetoric. I think I would include within the geopolitical risk, central banks. Yeah. Because- yeah, it's not life and death per se, but it is from an economic perspective. And I think the one thing that's being lost in everyone, there's no more printing. There's no more, really, with inflation, which is still, yes, it's come down a relative basis. It's still high. It's now growing in Japan. We see what's happening in the UK and in Europe. And to me, that's the scary part because people can ignore these things. We've ignored a lot of bad stuff in the last 14 years because of the central bank's ability to print. That to me, and I, you probably can't answer this because no one can quantify it, that to me is this back to the fundamentals and the bottom up and all the stuff that's gonna matter, which is the stuff that you do. And I think your case on small caps is absolutely spot on. How do you think about the global central banks and their role in this with liquidity in the marketplace? It's come up in conversations this summer on inflation, right? If we have a higher for longer situation in terms of inflation, you're gonna have to endure more aggressive central banks for a while. I will tell you, I've been surprised and heartened that a lot of the portfolio managers I talk to, they're kind of okay with it. It's not that they love it, but I think this era of easy money has pushed a lot of money into passive, and it has made it very hard to be an active manager when it's pushed everything up and to the right. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we have more traditional economic cycles, decision-making by actual human beings is going to matter a whole lot more. And I think people are starting to understand that. So they'll take the pain that's associated with that higher inflation, that higher rates, to have a more enjoyable job. Walk again. me, hold on, walk me through this transition back from passive to active, because I thought we were there last year and it got pushed to the wayside again. That will be a painful burning back through the atmosphere move, because to your point, everybody feels, oh, I'm safe in numbers. I got these ETFs. I have all this. But when it's forced to really look at it that way, I think that's going to be yeah, I, I just think it's been very difficult to beat the benchmarks, right? When everything is going up and to the right and you have these mega caps just swelling and swelling and portfolio managers, they have caps on how much of this stuff they can actually mm -hmm. buy. If you really have to go in and have more winners and losers and more dispersion within the market, the active manager matters more. Let's talk about the small caps because a large portion of them are typically these regional and small banks. Yeah. And obviously, many of them bottomed out March, April of this year for obvious reasons. And the absence of bad news, until recently at least, they've been levitating. But 
you're starting to see, obviously, the Moody's note. There are a lot of things that give you concern about maybe the health of regional banks. I understand on a valuation basis, but a lot of people think there's another shooter fall. If you're in that camp, it's going to be a tough slog in small caps, I think. This was something we wrestled with over the summer. And I went back and looked at the history of how small caps perform coming off recession lows and what the sector leaders are. And it's interesting because in large cap, if you look at the S&P 500, the financials, obviously a lot of that's driven by the banks, are typically recession recovery outperformers. You don't actually see that in small cap. They do well and they go up. But I guess my point is there's precedence to have a recovery trade in small cap in dicey economic times when financials are not leading the way. So the way I reconcile that in my head was I need the financials to settle down. I need them to behave. I don't need them to lead the way. It's areas like industrials, consumer discretionary materials that are typically those recession kind of cyclical outperformers. And if you look across the sector landscape, small versus large, pretty much everything is cheap and small versus large. I think the only two exceptions are staples and utilities. You actually see some of the most robust valuation gaps in things like industrials, in things like consumer discretionary. So you can do the math to get there without them. Just on the banks in general, everything's been backwards in this cycle, right? They get punished on holding treasuries and working back securities and the mark-to-market of those, right? There's not been a credit cycle yet. Yes, we've yeah. had credit and commercial real estate. That's not happening. But I think you've written about this. All the other areas within small cap are directly affected by banks participating in the markets and funding and lending. Yeah. That's contracting right now. I don't. Yeah, it's not off of a cliff, but it's contracting. So banks are being a lot more selective because their capital ratios and all the requirements are going to start to get even harder and harder. So to me, how do you factor that in? Because I don't think people, I, I don't think there is a playbook for the order of things of how, how this is happening. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. It's probably one of the most consistent pieces of pushback you get, especially from private bank type clients who do regularly do those allocations into and out of small caps. And I would say two studies that sort of gave us some comfort was number one, we picked apart the small cap balance sheets and we found that they're in pretty good shape as well. They've levered up in terms of long-term debt, don't have a lot in that zero to two year window. They do have a bit more in the two to five. I think, I forget the exact stat, but it's a lot, is sitting there. So you do need the Fed to start cutting, but there's a window of time, right? We've got a couple years before that's going to be a massive problem for the small cap space. The other thing we found that I thought was really more interesting, and we put this together probably around April or May, if you look at the small versus large trade, just a relative ratio, it tends to bottom out right around or a little before you get peak tightness in lending standards. So you know, we looked at it, the SVB issue and said, okay, well, if we just accelerate that tightening and bring it forward, that's actually good because it brings that bottom and small cap performance far, brings it forward in time. And I think it just goes back to the idea, why does that happen? Because small caps just trade everything early. So by the time things get really bad in terms of the lending environment, you've already priced it into small cap. I think we've been horrible there since 2021. This is where I pause and tell the listener, they can't see because it's a podcast. There's no... What do you mean? They're on YouTube. They can see video. it. Maybe they we can see video. We are on video. Maybe there's... I don't, Say hi to YouTube. I, 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 yeah. YouTube. Yeah. Lori's answering these questions without notes, and we didn't rehearse any of this. No. The questions we're asking, she's answering from just rote knowledge. That's I think that's important. Done. So I'm going to throw something else at you because why not? All right. This will be good. <laughs> the yield, the bond market's concerned me for a couple of years now. I think it's broken, but that's my word I'm choosing to use. Two's tens have gone from flat, 111 basis points inverted, 38 basis points, back to 105. And I think as we're sitting here, we're either side of 70-ish. That doesn't speak to a particularly healthy bond market. 
But what people seemingly worried about, and I've actually read about this, it's not the inversion that scares people, that that is scary in and of itself. It's the re-steepening of the yield curve where things start to get a little dicey. And we're seemingly in the midst of that. Unfortunately, it's because longer dated bonds have been going higher. And this week or last week, we heard from Bill Ackman, who rang the bell within the context of short term, but he's betting that interest rates go a lot higher. Thoughts on that? So look, I think over time, higher interest rates are going to suppress your PE multiples. Now, I think we're living in a moment in time when we're being jerked around a bit more by inflation. It is a headwind. And we've talked about my valuation model a little bit, which is telling me, look for 21, I think 21.45 times the end of this year, 23.4 at the end of next year. And that's all predicated on a 10-year yield that behaves. Mm -hmm. So I do think it is a risk, right? It is a risk to equity valuations. Probably going to keep things choppy as we debate that issue for a while. I asked you this last time. I asked this to pretty much every strategist that comes on. The love mail, the hate mail, the calls that you get, right? I want to ask you about that and also conjoin that with, I know what you do track is sentiment. Yeah. And when you have a 30-point spread between bulls and bears, I think, is when you hit your maximum. What does that look like right now? And then tell me the hate mail or love mail that you get. So, so the AAII, <laughs> yeah. I have to think about the love and hate mail yeah. right now. But the AAII indicator, you know, I, I used to work with Tobias Levkovich over mm-hmm. at City, and this was a big part of his process and something. You know, Legend. Yeah, and he always taught me to be a contrarian, right? That was probably his greatest gift was that willingness to take a contrarian stance. And so I've looked at this thing my whole career, and I redid the back test recently, actually. And one standard deviation above the long-term average is about 22 on the spread. And so we've crossed above that on the four-week average. Over the next 12 months, and this is based on data going back to the 80s, you have about 5% S&P 500 for return over the next 12 months. So it's not cataclysmic, right? But it does tell you're setting up for a period of digesting, you're setting up for a rocky road. And sometimes that has been associated with very dicey markets. We put out a note, I think at the beginning of this week, it's been a long summer. Mm. um, And we basically declined to up our S&P target. And we said there may be occasion to do this later in the year. This is not the time. So we're sticking with the 4,250. We have some models that are around 3,800, some models that get us up a lot higher to 4,800. That's our valuation earnings work. The 4,250 is the median or the average in between. So that's the base case. We've acknowledged the upside risk. This doesn't feel to me like a moment in time, given what I'm seeing on the sentiment, to push that upside case right now. All right. So hate mail, love mail, what do you got? I'm trying to think of For the pushbacks, like, Lori, you're just not seeing it. You don't you don't get it or I know you get both yeah. you get bears or bulls but I'm just curious of if Yeah so I would say the interesting thing that we've found, going back to this valuation model, that's probably what I get the most inbounds on. And I think it's indirect hate mail because people say, how can you possibly come up with this model that says we should trade at 20 plus times when bond yields are where Mm -hmm. they are and we should be trading at 15, 16 times. And I put my data nerd hat on and I say, oh, thanks for the question. And I do appreciate the question. And I say, look, I think you're probably just doing an analysis like a regression with the 10-year treasury yield. And that's what post-GFC history will tell you. And I said, I built a data model going back to 1962. And we looked at all these different factors and we put a regression together and we're layering in consensus expectations. And this is what it's spitting out. And it has about a 60% correlation over time. It's not a holy grail. It's a compass. It's, it's not a GPS. It's going to get you to the right town, not to the right street address. But it's been working over the last year and a half. And it's really been explaining what we've been seeing on the multiples. And by the way, I bet I know what you're doing every CPI day, which is sitting by your Bloomberg and waiting for the print. Mm -hmm. And that moderation inflation is what is pushing the multiple up. 
And that's exactly what happened in the 70s and 80s. And by the time I get through all that, most people's eyes are in the back of their heads and they're appreciative of it. And I wouldn't say it fully convinces everybody, but they're like, okay, maybe I need to look at something else besides the bond yield. So those are bears that are coming at you. Yeah. Because, but your target's 4250. So what are the bulls saying? They're saying just, you're saying, don't worry about my price target. That's not the important thing. Look at my sector allocations. That's more important. Yeah, the, the bulls, it's funny because even though I've got this target, we're a bit below where we are right now, I'm still considered to be relatively bullish. Mm. Um, and that's, I, I've found that funny all year because I keep getting the calls of, okay, you've been more constructive than most of the other strategists. What are you looking? What are you seeing? And we take them through the sentiment and the valuation and the earnings work. So I'm not getting a lot of pushback from the bulls. I think I'm talking to a lot of begrudging I wouldn't even call them begrudging bulls, but people who have been formerly bearish that are getting begrudgingly pulled into the market and just wanting help making sense of it. You mentioned Tobias Lefkowitz, legend in our world. Rest I think it was two years, I think it was October of 21 that he passed away. You probably know better than I, but what do you think he would, because he was, he was in front of so many different things. He was, again, he was- Behavioral finance. To- Behavioral finance, which th- that leads me to my question. What do you think he would make of this AI craze we've seen effectively for the last four or five months? And that's about the right time frame. That's a good question. I don't know what he would think about AI specifically, right? He was an old industrial guy and covered machinery and ENC stocks. I think he would probably take the spin, and I heard a client say this, so this is not my original thought, but I heard someone make a pitch that AI, by whittling away the jobs in the knowledge economy and the tech economy, was going to reinvigorate the old economy and the industrial economy, because you can't AI driving a truck and you can't AI building a building. So I think he might like that spin as an old industrial guy. Laura, it's great to have you back on, on the tape. You'll certainly be back again if not this year, early next year, and we'll continue to have these conversations. I know I can speak for Danny. Your work is extraordinary, which is why we love having you on and why Fast Money is obviously a place that you like to call home from time to time as well. I do. I like to come visit, and you guys are nice enough to have me. And, Guy, you've missed... Guy, you've missed the biggest thing. She's a season ticket holder for the New York Giants. Did Stop. You, wait a second. Hold yeah. on. Wait, yeah. So well, we got. I'm. We're approaching football season, and so by the time you come back that, on, you will have missed the playoffs. Where did so, that? So first of all, okay, you're wrong. Okay. Where did that come from? Now we have to talk about. Do you have a love of the New York football Giants? I do. You know, I married a local, so I grew up in the South. Yeah. I married a guy who grew up in Rockland County and was a lifelong Giant. I love fan. that. I grew up in the South and married a. New Yorker. That didn't make me like any of these New York teams, but yes. Well, when they built the new stadium. Which is a shithole, but continue. He had a little money left in his college fund that had never gotten spent, and so we spent it on a PSL and have our Giants tickets. Sell those tickets early and often, guy. Those are going to go down in value as the season progresses. So just so Lori knows, and now Danny's, this is going to be a big eat crow football season. Great. When the Giants drafted Daniel Jones. Here we go again with this Daniel I loved him. Yeah. Not now. I would say for every one person that loved him, there were 50 people that were like, what are you talking about? That is turning here. Mm. That worm has turned. And I'm going to tell you, Lori, that Daniel Jones is going to have a – his ratings, depending on what match, he'll be a top 10 quarterback in the National Football League this year. Okay. Very good. That's not saying much about the other 22 but that are remaining, but that's fine. Stick that's around. I, I'll put yeah. it this way. Yeah. He'll have a better season – both in wins and losses and statistically than Aaron Rodgers, who plays in the same stadium for a different team. Fair enough. But, Lori, we'll talk about that. Thanks for joining us. You're the best. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.
If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.